0: finding your way to a balanced way of living is the key to health and happiness each week on choosing the balanced life with diabetes you'll hear tips and tools for a happier and healthier life here's your host anita Westlake.
1: As many of you know, I'm always looking at new things when it comes to diabetes, especially a cure, which would be wonderful. And recently I've come across a new program, some research that has been done with neonatal pigs and taking the island cells from the pigs and transplanting them into humans. Now this is still in the process. It hasn't gone to clinical trial yet, although um, the program developers are very hopeful That this will happen shortly. This um, also comes from a group of people that developed the Edmonton Protocol, which is a technique used internationally, and it's the transplantation of islet cells into humans. And this is also another way um, for diabetics to keep control, not take insulin, and they have had some success. Although I must admit, I don't know a lot about it. I'm really um, thrilled that my guest is one of the leaders of these programs. His name is Dr. Gregory Corbett, and he's here to tell us more about this exciting news and about transplants of islets to humans. Thank you for joining me today, Greg.
0: Hello, how are you?
1: I'm great, and yourself?
0: Very good, thank you.
1: Wonderful. So I'm really thrilled that you're my guest today because I have to admit I really don't know a lot about uh, the transplantation of islet cells to humans. I, I really don't. What I do know is that um, there has been some success, and I've heard bits and pieces that l- not all of it has been long-term and that there is immune-suppressant drugs involved. And I think that scares a lot of people off because they have a correlation to other transplants such as kidneys and some of the issues that these people have when they have transplants performed on them.
0: Okay, so to give you a bit of a background, yes. So um, islet transplantation. So basically, what they're doing is is transplanting insulin-producing cells from an organ donor into patients with type one diabetes. And to date. The majority of the patients that have been transplanted are those patients that are what they typically call brittle diabetics, those who have problems controlling their blood sugars and experience uh, episodes of hypoglycemic unawareness. And yes, we are, because it is a transplant uh, from one individual to another, there needs to be immunosuppressive drugs used to prevent rejection of the transplanted tissue. And there is side effects of uh, immunosuppressive drugs, uh, so basically you have to weigh the, the risks of the immunosuppressive drugs with the benefits of the transplant. So that's why there's, it's not offered to all patients that have type 1 diabetes. So for example, if you are a patient that are dealing quite well uh, with your daily insulin injections and your glucoses are well, that um, right now because of the long-term immunosuppression, you may not be the best candidate for, for a transplant at the current technology. But uh, there are a large number of um, trials right now being done in a lot of centers internationally trying to reduce the amount of immunosuppression that is needed. And I think that it's not going to be long. I would say within the next few years that there are going to be regimes where we'll be able to transplant a wider patient group because the risks of the immunosuppression won't be as great as it currently is. So there is research going on. So I think that patients with type 1 diabetes um, should have hope because I think that there are... Protocols so protocols are going to be coming into the clinic that will uh, be able to be used for a lo- larger number of patients with type 1 diabetes.
1: And just to give some background, you've been in research uh, in diabetes for 30 years.
0: Yes, I have. I've been doing this. So I... I, when I got out of high school, I didn't know what I was going to do, so I, I drove a coke truck for a while so I could make money to travel to go skiing. And then I went to a uh, uh, Polytech here in Edmonton called the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. And I took a program that it was called Biological Sciences. So basically in that two-year program, I learned the skills to work in a medical research lab. And then when I graduated in 1982, I worked in a diabetes research lab that was doing uh, islet transplantation in in animal models, and then I really enjoyed it, so then I went on and got my bachelor's degree and my master's degree at the University of Alberta. And then I went to Belgium in 1988 to do my PhD. And then since then I've been a professor at the university, at the University of Alberta here. So it all started when I was working in, in the research lab as a technician. And all throughout my, my graduate program, or during my masters and my PhDs, I was always working in labs that were doing, uh, transplantation.
1: Wow. And, and I'm very curious. So, 30 years, you must have seen incredible changes and breakthroughs and moving forward.
0: There, there has been a lot of breakthroughs, uh, but, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, to take something from a research lab into patient care, it takes a long time. And, you know, when you look at even the pharmaceutical, uh, industry, you know, when they're coming out with these, these new drugs, they've been research for you know 20-25 years before they're in patient care so things take time but I think what I'm really excited about now is the technology now is so much more advanced than it was 25-30 years ago and I I see things that are happening that I think those are going to be coming into the clinic for patients with type 1 diabetes so we won't have to use as much immunosuppression.
1: I have not yet met personally anyone that's had um, a transplant done, although the closest I've come is of a parent of a young man that had uh, it performed, and they live in Texas, and he himself is a doctor, and he said his son had some difficulties as in his late teens managing diabetes, and so he did get the transplant done. I, I believe he's about 22 now, and he's had, um, he had the procedure about two years ago. He's 22 to 24, and his parents. Now, this is his father because this young man doesn't want to talk about it. Oddly enough, he doesn't want to share. He's uh, very shy, and his father said that he they noticed a tremendous difference in his care and his health um, once he had the transplants done, which surprised me because I'm thinking I, I don't know how much autoimmune or immune suppressants, pardon me, need to be taken. But it must, in a lot of cases, outweigh the risk because this young man, his parents said is doing so much better. And I, I'm imagining that his sugars were soaring. And from what they told me, they were plummeting and he wasn't waking up with low blood sugars.
0: Yes. I, I You know, I, I've met a large number of the patients that have been transplanted, especially here in Edmonton. And every single patient that I talk to says that they are very happy that they did it. Even though they are taking immunosuppression, those drugs are not that bad. They are, they do have some side effects, but I think that the simple fact is is that these patients' quality of life has significantly improved. So the benefit clearly outweighs that risk. And the risk isn't that great anymore as it it was, let's say, 15 years ago. I think that clinicians, the doctors, are much more experienced at managing this immunosuppression.
1: So what are the side effects of these, the amounts that they currently have to take? When you've had insulin transplants uh, or eyelids, uh, transplants done pardon me what how much do you have to take and what would be the risks involved in taking well, those the,
0: you can have simple side effects as you can have you know uh, upset stomach that, that can lead to diarrhea sometimes uh, you can, in some patients you can have m- mouth ulcers and they, they, some of the immunosuppressive drugs can be toxic to your kidneys. But like I said that the doctors now who are following these patients know how to manage the drugs a lot better so these side effects are a lot, are, are minimal now.
1: And now, uh, the other thing I've heard about this procedure is length of time. So are we getting more length out of this procedure? Because at one point I heard, well, some people had to go back on insulin after about five years. Now, I'm talking a number of years ago. Nevertheless, is this something that can be managed throughout a person's lifetime, or is this something where it would last a period of time then they may require insulin again?
0: You know, the the thing is, is... Is, I think the, the benchmark or the, the benchmark for success should not necessarily be on insulin or not. Uh, I think that it could be, like, a lot of patients with the older protocols did have to go back on some insulin, not as much as it was prior to the transplant, but still their glucoses were much better to manage. Okay, so you've got your body making insulin, now you have to supplement it with a bit of insulin injections. The end result is is you're controlling your blood sugars a lot better than you were before the transplant, which in itself is going to help prevent diabetic complications. Okay. Right, and now with the new protocols that they're that are being used in the clinic, the the longevity of the transplants are working a lot better.
1: So they have come further with that, and they
0: have. Yes,
1: I think we're missing the point, or I'm missing the point that um, it was better management overall, whether they had to take a little bit of insulin or not. I'm thinking that you know a lot of times when the media gets a hold of it, they just say insulin free. No more needles, or you hear, yeah, but, you know, after length of time, they're back on insulin. You're not hearing the bigger picture.
0: But they may, some patients may be back on insulin, but it's a lot less than what they were on before.
1: Which is important, obviously, in their management. Yeah. It's all yeah. about the management and your health overall. Yes. So this new program is sounds very exciting. So we go from um, insulin eyelids coming from humans, and now you're looking at neonatal pigs. Why the shift from humans to the neonatal pigs?
0: Well, the main reason is, is, like with every other organ transplant, like for kidneys or hearts, that there are a limited number of human organs to transplant. So we get our insulin-producing cells currently from human pancreases when there's a, an organ donor. So there, these are limited. So there's always, there's waiting lists for people to get transplants of different organs and tissues. So the concept of using animals and uh, such as the pig has been around for a number of years for uh, different organs. So I started working years ago trying to isolate uh insulin-producing cells from pigs, like other researchers were doing, and what well, was found that uh, adult pig uh, uh, insulin-producing cells did not work that well because they're extremely fragile. So I worked out a procedure uh, where we can isolate insulin-producing cells from neonatal pigs And this has been something I've been working on since about approximately 1990. Um, So it's taken a long time. So we've done the progression in experimental models, so we've cured diabetes in mice, we've cured diabetes in pigs, we've cured diabetes in monkeys, so you have to work up the order. And then, so now we've done that, so the next step that we're doing is, is we're trying to get this into what we call a phase one clinical trial into patients with type one diabetes. And that takes time and it, it takes effort to raise money to do the clinical trial. We have to convince Health Canada that it's safe to put in, uh, insulin-producing cells from a pig into a patient, but this is something that my lab is working on, uh, and we hope to get this into patients, you know, within the next three three years or so.
1: So when you say from the pig into the patient, what happens with rejection?
0: Well, the rejection, it's going to be very similar to what's happening with um, with the the human islands that you transplant. The immunosuppression may have to be a bit different. Uh, we are working on other strategies besides it in using immunosuppressive drugs to help prevent rejection. So there is a lot of research going on to to overcome rejection of not only human insulin-producing cells but also pig cells.
1: And there's lo- There is lots going on. I hear of all kinds of things that they're they're working on. But they could be that they're working on it with yourself, and that's where some of the confusion, I think, comes in. I, I did hear about some casing instead of using using a suppressants, um, immune suppressants, a casing so to speak, in layman terms, that addicts could be put into so that they weren't rejected within the body. I've heard of all kinds of things. Is that something that your team would be working in conjunction with someone else?
0: That is, uh, I am working on that uh, specifically. I have funding from the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. This is
1: where I heard it, actually, oddly enough that we're going to bring this up. And I didn't want to say it until you did, but they did, uh, in speaking with them, they said they're, they're, they are extremely excited about this project. Yeah. And I'm hearing all kinds of things from them about this casing and how they're working with the team. And I'm, I'm so fortunate to be talking to you then. Um, and moving forward with this and, and what they're telling me is a very aggressive way.
0: Yes, they are, and I'm working with, uh, with uh, researchers from the University of British Columbia on this. So basically what it is, you, you call it a casing. The term that we use is called encapsulation. So basically we put a barrier around our insulin-producing cells that we transplant so that when we transplant it, The patient's immune system, the cells that would tend to reject the tissue or that are in your immune system to reject viruses when you get infected with the virus, they can't physically touch those cells. So that is one means of preventing rejection.
1: Instead of taking these immune suppressant drugs?
0: Or you would take less.
1: Okay. So they might not... Fully disappear, but you would take less. Yeah. Now, in this, um, in this capsulation of these cells, could just, you know, I have to ask, could something happen to these cells where they could be infected in this uh, capsule and they would, you know, it's not a good thing that the immune system can't get to them? Or is this not in the equation?
0: No, that's not in the equation. I think it's a good thing that the immune system can't see them
1: so they would- are, they are protected, which uh, presently they're not protected uh, and of course, I'm a type one diabetic, so my immune system, uh, even if I'm producing um, insulin island cells, they're going to be killing them off all the time at a very great rate
0: Yes, so the idea was if you put it in this this casing that we'd block part of the immune system, and then to block the rest of it, we would just need a little bit of immunosuppression, or what people are working on is a short-term immunosuppression, so it would be only for a small period of time.
1: And then what would happen after that small period then of time? Then you could
0: withdraw it, and then you, your your body won't reject it still
1: has there been any studies that you've been able to um, do on just the immune system, why it attacks the insulin islet cells? And if it doesn't attack the insulin islet cells, could it perhaps attack other parts of the body? Is it, just about our insulin island cells, or is it really a problem with our immune systems? Because I've recently heard of a lot of, you know, they're, uh, diabetics who are celiac, and then they become type 1 diabetics, especially in young people. Or they've had lupus, and then they develop type 1 diabetes. Or they're type 1 diabetics that have developed auto, other autoimmune disorders. I am fortunate. I'm knocking on wood presently. The only thing I have is diabetes. I don't even have high blood pressure. I, I'm really fortunate. Um, and so I, but a lot of people have and don't have diabetes. So overall, I'm fortunate to have this kind of health. Is there any correlation there? If you were to stop the immune system from attacking the islet cells, has there been any, um, proof that it would perhaps attack something else?
0: Not really. There, there, that really isn't an issue. But to go back on, To the whole fact, of so type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disorder. So that means that if you're a patient with type 1 diabetes, your own immune system attacks and destroys the cells that make insulin. So what causes that? We don't know. There has been research for a number of years trying to understand what causes that because if we understand what causes it, we might be able to prevent it. And that's the other thing with other autoimmune disorders such as multiple sclerosis. We do not know the understanding. Okay, so there are strategies. So, for example... If you have a patient that is newly diagnosed, let's say you have a young child that just got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, can we intervene to prevent it from, from progressing any further? So there are, is research out there looking at ways to do that, to manipulate the own patient's immune system. But I don't think there is a concern by manipulating that immune system, that's going to other, it's going to attack other parts of the patient. No, that's, that's not a concern.
1: Just have to ask because you have to wonder, because it's uh, autoimmune and you hear how, you know, so many other things are autoimmune, you wonder if your own immune system, if not attacking something such as the islet cells, would it attack something else? And, if, and so there's, there's nothing at this point that's proven that to be correct.
0: No, there isn't, no. And all autoimmune diseases are still a mystery to to, uh, to researchers. So you know the thing is, is a lot of people believe that we, you know, we we really need to understand what's causing that. And to date, we are still not sure what does that. So,
1: does any of your research help support the efforts in finding out why?
0: Yeah, it does. So there are, I'm looking at ways of, if you have a newly diagnosed patient, can you intervene? And like, for example, can you give some type of stem cells uh to uh an individual who is just diagnosed with type 1 diabetes that could help rescue their insulin-producing cells? So there is research out there looking at that.
1: And what kind of stem cells um, would you possibly be able to give these people?
0: You could give their own stem cells. So in our bone marrow and in other tissues in our body, we have cells that are called mesenchymal stem cells. And what these cells do, they're in your body to, um, to repair tissues. So if we could isolate those from a patient's, let's say, bone marrow, and we could give them back to that patient. Uh, then it might help prevent or the progression of the disease.
1: Interesting that you said that. Um, I read something not too long ago, maybe about a year and a half ago, and they were talking about taking um, cells such as what, you know from bone marrow, and they were looking at the hip, and they said if you are newly diagnosed. They were great, like they they found some success, they were very hopeful, let's put it that way. But if you had diabetes for a number of years, and I would be in that category, that it wasn't so easy, but they did, they were hopeful in the way that they took some of these cells from the hip. The problem was getting it to the pancreas, because apparently the pancreas is not in, in in a location that is easily gotten to.
0: You don't have to put them into the pancreas; you can just inject them into the into a person's bloodstream and they would go to the pancreas and The thing is is it's it the thing is is yeah, it's expected it will probably work best in patients that are newly diagnosed because there is less to repair as opposed to a person. Who like your yourself, who's had diabetes for a number of years because there's more to repair, so newly when you're newly diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, you in still fact are known to have uh, still some insulin producing cells.
1: They used to call that when i was when I was diagnosed, they called it your honeymoon.
0: Honeymoon
1: period, yep, you still do. Do they still call it that? And that yeah. they used to warn us and say, okay, if you start to have a lot of low blood sugars, you have to let your doctor know immediately that we'll have to cut back on your insulin or you stop taking insulin. That Does not mean you're no, no longer a diabetic? It means you have a honeymoon period. And they explained all of this to children. We were just kids. And they explained all of this to us, um, which was just wonderful. I was very fortunate to have that kind of an education. And the sad part was they'd say, you know, it only lasts for a period of time, though, and we can't tell you how long or if it will even happen to you. But at this time, you may stop insulin and have to return back on it. Okay. So if, if the pancreas, going back, to, getting back to the pancreas, if the pancreas is in a difficult area to reach, how are what is this transplant all about? Is this a really uh, big procedure to have done if you were to have transplants done into the pancreas?
0: You don't, you would not want to have them transplanted in the pancreas. You'd want to have them transplanted someplace else. So, for example, with the stem cells, that they would repair the pancreas. All you got to do is inject them intravenously, and for some unknown reason, maybe that's because that's where the damage is, is that these cells will migrate there and repair and when but when we're transplanting insulin producing for example in the clinical ILA programs where we well, I'm not talking about stem cells here but when we're transplanting insulin producing cells we don't transplant them in the pancreas we are currently putting them in the, in the liver
1: oh so I, I didn't realize that
0: yes so and then when we're talking about this encapsulation device where the idea there is, is we would not put those in the liver. We would put those, for example, underneath your skin.
1: And they wouldn't so, be visible, though. It, would it, be visible uh, no, the...
0: it wouldn't be visible. No, it wouldn't It would be just under, not just like underneath, um, between your skin and the muscle, something like that. Okay. Yeah.
1: And that could be in any part of the body. Is there a preferred part of the body?
0: Well, it would probably be somewhere, maybe in the abdomen or something like that.
1: That seems to be a very preferred part of the body when it comes to diabetes.
0: <laughs> yeah, it does. Yeah,
1: that's where they ask you to give your injections, if it's especially fast-acting insulin, and the slow-acting insulin, and in, you know, if you can, around your back or your um, your derriere, let's say. Uh, yeah. But the abdomen seems to be a very popular area, even and when they want tell us to watch weight. Um, even for non-diabetics, too much weight in the front can cause diabetes, as they've said. So it is a popular area. This, So nothing would go to the pancreas whatsoever?
0: No, no, no. We don't want to. See, the pancreas is the pancreas is a very, very fragile organ. Okay? So the thing is, is they're not going to want to touch it. Okay? So it's going to have to... So we've always transplanted. We've never transplanted in the pancreas.
1: And what kind of pressure does this put on the liver?
0: Uh, Not that much. If we put too much cells in it, it it will put pressure, but typically not not a problem.
1: So people haven't, uh, do they have to have their liver tested? Obviously, if they've had a procedure like this.
0: Oh, it's just going to be in their routine blood stuff, their blood tests that they have. So it's 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 not it's not an issue. It's a safe procedure. Otherwise, we wouldn't be putting it there.
1: Is this a lengthy procedure?
0: No. You go into the radiology suite. You don't even go into an operating room.
1: You're kidding me.
0: Yeah, you go into the radiology suite, and they use ultrasound to guide what we call a catheter or a tube, and it's into they find a vein. It could be, let's say, a vein on your leg or something like that, and then they, they guide it in so the radiologist can see where it goes, and they just basically guide it so that it goes into the liver.
1: Now, is a person conscious while this is done?
0: If they prefer it, if they want to, they can.
1: So it's that minor procedure that you don't have to be put under? Yeah. That's incredible. I had no idea. I envisioned this... Um, really big operation or a surgery where you no, have this no, no, no. huge recoup time and scars, and then there would be healing, possibly no. healing issues, and so on.
0: It's it's non-invasive, and that is the the advantage of it because, uh, for example, it's there's no minimal risk in the transplant, so.
1: That's incredible. Having said that, what is, what is your average wait time for a donated, um, for donated, I'm not going to say entire pancreas, obviously, or maybe it is, but for the islet cells, what is the waiting list time right now?
0: It depends on what center, and I'm not aware of the waiting list here in Edmonton. It all depends on, because there there will be, let's say, in a particular center that does islet transplantation, they may have anywhere from three to five different protocols that they want to test, right? And they're testing different protocols to basically improve the procedure. So... It depends on how you meet the criteria to enter that protocol. I think that, you know, one of the issues always is is the availability of uh, the human tissue to transplant. And that's just, you know, that's all over the place, you know, like you, we could go we could have a lot of pancreases from organ donors and then we can go weeks without any. It all depends. That's why it's really important in Canada for people to sign their organ donor consent forms or on their driver's license to consent to donate organs, not only for patients with type 1 diabetes, but for, you know, kidneys, livers, etc.
1: Now, what happens if somebody signs their donor card, but they have type 2 diabetes? They've now they're older and they've developed type 2 diabetes. Are they still a candidate to use their cells?
0: Uh, I, at the moment, if they're known to be diabetic, I'm not sure if they're going to use them for a patient. But then again, in, in society, I think there is a lot, of pa- a lot of people walking around with undiagnosed type 2 diabetes.
1: And there is, the numbers are just staggering. What yeah. I have only U.S. numbers at hand, um, but they say 29.1 million people in the U.S. are living with diabetes. That's type yeah, 1 and 2. Then there's 85 million that are in risk, so they're borderline. Mm-hmm. And within the next five years, uh, well over 35% they feel yeah. will, will become type 2. So is there some testing you do with the organs because of this? Does it have to go through something? Are you able to? And if so, are those cells uh, still effective if if they are type 2? Would you still use we them? We don't
0: know that. We don't know that, and there's nothing that we do to really screen uh, for for. Type two diabetes. If it, we're going to use the cells or not, uh, I think that it has to meet the standard criteria. If, if it meets the criteria for for a whole pancreas transplant, then we it, it's used for islet isolation. But you also got to remember that if when we get a pancreas from an organ donor and isolate the human islands. Because the procedure is not 100% perfect, we and probably maybe 50% of the the times we get tissue to transplant. The other 50% we don't get enough cells to actually do a transplant or it doesn't work very well. And that's because you've got to understand that these organ donors are usually in, in individuals who've had some type of physical trauma, right? So it, sometimes the organs aren't perfect for for isolation.
1: So if it if it didn't work, it wasn't all that successful, as you just said, it, could these people be topped up or have this procedure done again?
0: Yes, that's the advantage with using the pig islets, because they're unlimited.
1: And if you started with human and it wasn't successful, does this inhibit you from using the um, pig islets or no, having something else done? No, it does
0: no, in fact, using too many human organs, too many human islets might not be good because then you get sensitized to, to human uh, antigens, which might not be good. Whereas with the pig, at this time, we think it it should be okay.
1: And we are, how far away would you estimate, and I'm not trying to hold you to anything, I know there's variables, but are we 20 years away, you said about three, do you think that that's... I
0: would say three, I think our biggest obstacles are with the regulatory bodies such as Health Canada to allow us to do a phase one trial, so a phase one trial, you only do about 10 patients, and the goal there is to prove that it's safe and it has some form of efficacy. It's not to necessarily cure patients, it's just to show that it's safe and it works to a certain degree. And then once you can do that, then you go to the, like a phase two trial and that's when you, you uh, are uh, increasing enough cells to actually um, uh, correct diabetes.
1: So, where? What about this encasing? How far away is that? Do you think from? It's
0: being done in patients in some places right now.
1: So it's really moving along.
0: It is, yeah, yeah.
1: And will that support these neonatal pig? Um... Oh,
0: that's what I'm doing. That's um, it's exactly what I'm working on.
1: So this is really, really moving along. Now, we're just talking about Canada at the moment. Are there other places in the world that this is being worked on and, and you work together with other countries? Yeah,
0: I, for example, with, uh, with this enc- encasing encapsulation, so the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation, which is an international organization, has formed a consortium to work just on this. And it involves researchers from across the world so, that are working on this.
1: So, although Health Canada has some uh, regulations that and protocols that you have to meet, let's say you went to Great Britain or France, would they are, are they any further ahead with these treatments?
0: Nah, they're we're about the same. Yeah. So,
1: so no one's really further ahead than anyone else.
0: No, all uh, the majority of the regu- regulatory bodies are the same.
1: So it is what it is at the moment, because you do hear, well, if you go to one country, you might be able to have something done a little quicker than if you wait in your own country. Or they're doing studies in one part of the world, and, you know, unfortunately, they're not doing them in others. And that can be very frustrating for patients.
0: Well, that is, you know, the only thing I can think about that relates to that is, is, In some countries where the regulatory bodies aren't that strict and allow people to do research is to do a lot of different stem cell transplants that really haven't proven to be efficient. And then they just do it because there's, you know, it's good for our health Canada to be cautious because we don't want to be just doing whatever and, you know, causing damage to patients.
1: It's a good thing. And it also can be a very frustrating thing, I think. For it a lot can of
0: people. be, but Health Canada it actually works quite well with us, and they want us to succeed, and so they're they're not they're not um, obstructing anything. They we just have to do things the right way, and we're working with them, and it it, it works well.
1: So, are there a lot of these clinics? Because I had no idea, and I can't, I really didn't have any idea it was this simple. It wasn't uh, a large, a big surgery to have these transplants done. So do they do them in other parts of Canada, or is it only in Edmonton?
0: The other center that's doing it, it's not so much the transplant procedure that's complicated. The main thing is, is do you have the expertise to isolate the cells? And so there's a group in Vancouver that are doing it. Okay. And there is a group in Montreal that are doing it. As far as I know, those are the main groups in Canada that are doing it. But the reason why we're doing it here in Edmonton is because we've got years and years of experience doing it. You know, and it it takes it, it takes years to learn how to do it properly and and do it well.
1: What about in the US? Do,
0: do the you- US there's a number of centers. But there is probably only a handful that do it well.
1: Okay. And how would you know uh, who do it well and who don't?
0: Because it's a small community.
1: Okay. It's a small so scientific
0: sh- community, so we all know each other.
1: So, how does someone tell good from bad? It's their doctor. Do, do you think all, an endocrinologist would know, or are they. They're not, you know, when you say, uh, it's a small community, but who would, someone like myself, if I lived in the U.S., let's just say, and I'm living in Arkansas, how would I know where these cells came from, good from bad, and, and that only a handful are doing it properly? Or I,
0: well, I think that you would have to do your research, and how you do that, it's really, uh, it's really difficult to, say to say. I think that, you know, how do you know what centers do? Well, I think that in in the US, the centers that are doing it right now are doing it well. I think that when the Edmonton Protocol came out in 2000, there was every lab from all over the world coming to visit Edmonton to learn how to do it. And now that's not the case because I think a lot of them tried and failed. So I think the ones that are doing it now are doing it well.
1: So there is there is a little more um, security for a patient when looking. If there's a proper center developed, they're more than likely doing it well.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: And back to this neonatal pigs because this is very exciting in the way that um, not only the encasing, which you're working on, and again I'm saying encasing, but the fact that, you know, we don't have to wait for a human organ. And it seems to be a little more uh, controlled where you know whether they have diabetes or not, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily the case with a human um, donation. So what kind of facility do you have to change your facility? Because I did read something about you having a new facility, a proper facility that a lot of money was invested in.
0: Yeah, so to 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 isolate... Um Cells like stem cells, um, yeah, to to go into patients. Like for for right now, if someone wants to like uh, to transplant cells and tissues into patients, they need a special type of lab for it to be approved by Health Canada and like the FDA in the U.S. So. So it's called a good manufacturing practice laboratory. So what I do, so I've isolated for years the neonatal pig islets in my my laboratory. But I can't use that laboratory to do the same thing to go into patients. So you need a specialized lab to do it and we just built such a facility here we got money from the federal government that's called the canadian foundation for innovation that supports infrastructure and equipment and uh the province matched it The university of alberta put in some funds so we we raised uh 26 million dollars for this facility
1: that's a lot of money
0: it is, but these facilities are expensive, and they're expensive to run. Like having, raising the money to to build it is one thing. Now we need to raise money to operate it. But nonetheless, we have so we have this facility, and that's what we're going to use to isolate the neonatal pig violence.
1: So a lot of money is behind this. There's a lot of support when it comes yes. to this venture.
0: Yeah, there is. Yeah.
1: Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, is money an issue at this point in moving it forward?
0: Yeah, there, like, for example, for the neonatal pigs to get it into the clinic, it's going to take a lot of money to to do a phase one trial. So uh, that's one of the things that I do is I'm always trying to, um, to raise money for such an endeavor to, to get it into the clinic.
1: What about the U.S.? Are they doing something alongside of you, or are you doing this solo? And can someone in the U.S. support your efforts so that they can receive such a treatment?
0: I am actually do, working with a group in, in Brussels on this.
1: So it's outside of North America completely.
0: Yeah, yeah. Which which is good because then it's we're trying to to convince the European health regulatory bodies as well as Health Canada to do it. And the reason why I'm working with the group in in Brussels is because that's where I did my Ph.D. and I'm working with um, uh, my my old supervisor there.
1: But what about Americans that are, are really interested? There
0: are, there are. I can think of one group in the U.S. that are doing it, yeah.
1: But could they support... Your efforts in Canada, knowing that they could, they come there and get this treatment, or would it just yes, be isolated? Yeah, yeah
0: definitely. Yeah. yeah. So th-
1: this is just about the treatment. You don't. You could be from the U.S., possibly the U.K., and come to Canada. I, I would assume you'd have to come to this facility and have this performed.
0: You wouldn't have to come to this facility. This facility would isolate the cells, right? Okay. And then we would send them to and it would be transplanted. So that patient, where that patient is, they would need the ability to do the transplants there.
1: And from what I understand, they're doing that anyways with, with human yeah. eyelets. So really someone could um, back anywhere in the world, back your facility, this yeah. clinic, so that you can isolate these cells and they could be transported to their country and it could be performed on them. Yeah. So it's really about this facility and the idea of getting these um, cells or, or extracting these cells, am I saying that correctly? Yeah, yeah. So that's the main part of it. I, I think a lot of us just keep thinking of the procedure rather than the source. Yeah. And so what you're working on right now is developing this source so that it could be approved and done. Yes. So if, if you're going through Health Canada right now, and it's approved, and now you're extracting them. What would happen if someone was in a country where, is there a possibility that this would not be approved, that they couldn't receive this treatment because it wasn't approved with the the neonatal pig?
0: It would have to be approved in the patient's own country.
1: Okay, so if it was approved, then they could receive it in their own country. If not, they would have to come, they could come to Canada and have it done. Yeah, yeah. So there is that option. And yeah. it currently, is, do you know what's going on with that? Is this a global effort? Are they looking to you to say, okay, what's going on with your facility in extracting these cells or yeah. other yeah. countries?
0: Uh, they, they, not so much the other countries, but what it is is it's more like um, the research community that are involved in islet transplantation are aware of what we're doing. Okay, so we share ideas and they, they know what we're up to, yeah,
1: which is a great thing. Now, yeah. having this procedure done, how um, besides doing it in the way that you've described to me, basically it's an outpatient's procedure.
0: You would keep the patient in usually overnight just for just for precautions.
1: What about if you were to perform this encasing? Is, um, is that a big procedure?
0: No, it wouldn't be, not if we put it underneath the skin.
1: So it's a fairly minor procedure. Yep.
0: That's what we're hoping, that's what we want to make it. We really want to make it simple, right?
1: I'm hearing more and more about this um, encapsulation of the cells and um, really how hopeful they are. So when we say encapsulation, it obviously has to be able to have insulin pass through it.
0: Yes, it does, yes. Yeah. So
1: it's not like it's some test tube being put inside of us or something.
0: No, but, insulin can go through it. Oxygen can go through it. So it's a permeable membrane so that glucose can go in it so that the insulin-secreting cells can sense it, right?
1: And is this something that would have to be replaced?
0: We don't know, but if it, that wouldn't be an issue in my mind.
1: It would be a fairly small procedure? Yeah. Because, you you know, you hear of these things if you have a knee or a hip replaced even, there's a a lifespan to it and that you might need it done again and again. And that's why I'm asking about this encapsulation, if it's something that has longevity or not. This is all really exciting stuff.
0: It is. I love what I do.
1: Uh, well, so do I. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I have to tell you, it's exciting because I had no idea it was that simple. I envisioned a very, you know, big, daunting surgery and trying to get to my pancreas and all these um, just horrific Things that could happen. And the fact that it wasn't ready available to a lot of uh, people with diabetes, not in that, in my experience at least, and I know a lot of people with diabetes, and it's that all kind of created a picture. And I'm sure not just for myself, I know in other diabetics and family members thinking, well, is this really something that, you know, is promising or that we can back? But it seems rather um, the lack of people. That are yeah. able to donate, and then of course there's always the immune suppressant drugs involved. But the, as you said, they are going down.
0: Yeah, they're improving. The the, the 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 amounts. I meant. Yeah. yeah, they are.
1: And so the risk to um, the benefit factor is sliding. Would you say more to the benefit?
0: Yeah, I I think so, definitely.
1: Now I know a, a lot of people that suffer with um, with low blood sugars, hypoglycemia. They um, they're using other tools such as dogs, which are just wonderful. I have to say that really helps a lot of people with their low blood sugars and dealing with them. But is it just in the case of low blood sugars where one would meet um, kind of the criteria to have this done? Or is it what about people that run high blood sugars constantly or really have a hard time bringing them down?
0: You know, I I think what it is is, you know, it's usually when it comes to what patient's going to be transplanted, I think it's typically going to be on a case-by-case basis. So I really caution to make general over, you know, sweeping generalizations on. Yeah, so it could be a patient that does have runs high, you know. So I think it's best that... That each individual patient would contact their endocrinologist and then the endocrinologist can help refer them if they are, they feel that they, they are a good candidate for a transplant.
1: And it is that simple. I am just amazed. I have to tell you, I'm blown away by that. Having said that, is there any way that we can follow your progress in this wonderful program when it comes, especially with this new program that you're leading in the neonatal pigs?
0: Well, we have a website for our GMP facility. It's called the Alberta Cell Therapy Manufacturing Facility. And that is, so we have a website for that. And what is the website? The website is, I will just give me one second. I'll have to, I don't know what, it's a fairly new site. So we're just got it up and running and we'll be, So it is www.actm.ualberta.ca.
1: And anyone throughout the world could have a look at this and the progress, because it sounds like you're one of the only, I know you're working with, um, is it Belgium? Yes. But other than that, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of, you know, work being done other than your facility. So anybody can have a look at this and see the progress in this project?
0: Yes. Uh, right now, there's nothing on that website for the for the new natal pigs. But as we get, you know, advanced, um, things will be updated on that.
1: And how can people support this in moving forward?
0: Well, if people are interested in supporting it, they can contact, you know, they can contact, contact myself directly and um, go from there.
1: And how would they do that?
0: They could just contact me by email.
1: And can we have your email?
0: <laughs> yeah, my email is uh, korbutt at ualberta.ca. ca.
1: And in the in the subject line, I'm sure they can put uh, diabetes or your uh, new project with neonatal pigs.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: And they can um, find out how they can support and maybe perhaps get more information. This is really exciting. Yeah. And I'm hoping that three years is um, will be the the longest. And I know you can't push these things. And I know there's effortless. Um, you know, so much effort, I should say, put into this. But it's so exciting. It would help so many people. What about type 2? Is this something, I know it's only a stepping stone and you have to protect, uh, perfect, perfect these things, I'm sorry. Is this a stepping stone to help those with type 2 or just type 1?
0: No, I think this would be definitely applicable to type 2 diabetics.
1: And I understand that you start with type 1 again because it's controlled, we have yes. it for one reason. But it's very promising for those because there's such a huge number or population of people living with type 2 that this also could be promising for that population also. Definitely. Well, I can't thank you enough, uh, Greg, for joining me. I really learned a lot today about transplants. I, had, I, I must admit my, um, cons- my idea of what it entailed was completely off.
0: Well, I'm glad I was able to help you get a little bit more informed.
1: Uh, really informed, uh, along with, you know, some of the other things that they're doing with stem cell at the beginning if you're a new diabetic. Because I, I I hear you hear lots of things in the media, tons of things, but what they're not really, as far as I'm concerned, and I am a diabetic, um, I am an audience for this. I'm not hearing how simple, really simple. I'm, I'm thinking it's like open heart surgery, or you know, just daunting things when it comes to having these transplants perform rather than it being quite simple.
0: Yeah, it is quite simple.
1: And if it doesn't work well, it's not necessarily the end of the world.
0: No, yeah, yeah, I agree with that. And seeing as it is not an invasive procedure, then it's, it's, it's quite easy to justify doing it.
1: Really, the concern at this point, I would say, is the um, immune suppressant drugs. But as you said, they are getting better.
0: They are getting better, and they're much more manageable, I think.
1: Well, that's just tremendous. So it's something for someone to explore with their doctor, their endocrinologist preferably. If they're having um, issues with the management of their diabetes and really struggling, this is definitely something to look into and not to be as fearful, perhaps, as a lot of people may have been. I agree. Well, thank you again so much for joining me. And, You're more than um, welcome. I would really encourage everyone to keep an eye on this and to follow and support in any way that we can. This is something very exciting, especially with the um, facility to extract these neonatal uh, pig cells and use for humans. It's, it seems much, uh, a much better option than donated organs at this point. Great information on transplants and all the wonderful headway that they're making with this area and improving it all um, for the purpose of helping people living with diabetes. It might not be an overall cure, but definitely a wonderful um, and a more aggressive way of managing our diabetes, especially when we're struggling with diabetes. Next week, please join me when we talk about some other exciting news when it comes to management, the Needless Needle. So this is when you're able to take your blood sugars and not prick your finger and inject insulin without a needle. I'm really excited about this interview, so please join me next week to hear more about this. And if you've actually um, had a transplant and would like to share your story, your journey, and how it's improved your life, please um, email me at Anita at AnitaCoach.ca or even if you have any questions about today's podcast. And follow me on Twitter at Anita Westlake.